Welcome to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Welcome back. I'm Father Matt Malone, Editor-in-Chief of America Magazine, and we are talking, as we do each week, about the news and the views at the intersection of the Church and the world gathered by the team at America Magazine. And I'm joined by two of those team, Father Eric Sundrup and Robert David Sullivan. And we're talking with uh, Dr. Sally Sattel, who is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, about her piece in America, the issue of May 28th, um, Prescriptions Are Not to Blame for Today's Opioid Crisis. Hello, Doctor. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for being with us. And I think we have your editor here with us too, yes. Robert David Sullivan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, it's wonderful to have you on the broadcast. So, uh, for our listeners who may not have uh, read the piece in America, uh, what was the argument that you were making? Yeah, I actually might, with all due respect to my editor, might tweak the uh, title a tiny bit uh, to say that uh, uh, painkillers are not currently driving the opioid epidemic. Yeah. And obviously the text reflects that. So, uh, yes, obviously we have a significant opioid crisis and the the overdose deaths are, are continuing to mount. Even though prescribing of pills is actually starting to decline pretty pretty impressively, mm-hmm. what's what's driving the overdose deaths is actually heroin and especially fentanyl, which is a, a synthetic opioid that is trafficked from China either through Mexico or actually by the mail, which is a huge problem with the with the dark web, and um, and it's fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin. And so, as you can imagine, it's it's highly deadly. People who buy this on the street often don't know what they're getting. Some people who are trying to buy illicit pills on the street are actually buying uh, fentanyl that's been pill-pressed into the shape of familiar pills, like Xanax, for example. Wow. And that's incredibly dangerous. Oh, so this is what is uh, really driving driving the problem now, which is not to say that, that some doctors still do not overprescribe. That was a real was a big problem and, and continues to, to be an issue. But again, um, in terms of overdose crises, the crisis, and overdoses, as you know, are just part of this. We, right. There are lots of social fallout beyond that, but uh, they are not no longer being driven by pills so much, but these other illicit substances. So rather than, say, somebody, some doctor over-prescribing one of these drugs, um, the, the, the folks who are really, or the folks who are mainly abusing them currently are getting them illegally through some other means. Is that what, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Well, no, I'm saying that the, the uh, substances that are uh, predominantly responsible for the overdose deaths are, right, heroin or, or illicit fentanyl. And even among the, the, the painkiller deaths, they're rarely due to just one drug. Uh, on autopsy, the toxicology shows people mix drugs with or, and or with alcohol. Uh, and that tends to be the... Uh, what what the the fatal event is, but it's also very important to recognize that, um, and I think this is a, a myth that needs to be dispelled um, frequently because it's so persistent, which is the idea that the average person getting a few days of pills, and that's usually all people need if they need any 
opioid medication at all, and I'm referring to medications like Vicodin, Percocet, these kinds of things, people only need a few pills. Uh, true, doctors used to prescribe too much, and some still do. That's an issue. But, the, but they're not likely to get addicted to these. And I, I fear that that's one of the myths that's been circulating, is that these drugs are, are so dangerous that um, people should even people should, should not even want to take them if they have you know, real pain after a surgical procedure, something like that. The average person is not at risk for becoming addicted. Now, what's important to notice is that, no, is that there are subgroups of patients who are at risk, and these are people who've had previous problems with pills or, or, any kind, or, or opioids, um, people who have had an alcohol problem, people who are suffering from pretty significant depression or anxiety, um, these kinds of these are the kinds of situations that that make people feel so grateful for the kind of psychic relief that you get from these medications that they are prone to keep taking them. But that's a subset. Most yeah. of the pills that are abused are actually not by patients. They're by uh, folks who were given, given them the pills by uh, friends or relatives or they bought them on the street. And these are the pills that went into, these are the excess pills often that went into the medicine chest because doctors, without question, were giving a month at a time when, when all people needed was a few days or maybe they even just needed some some Tylenol and, and Motrin right. and, a, and a heating heating pad. <laughs> right. <laughs> the old-fashioned way. And wh- how, did, how did we get here? How did this become a crisis? Well, <clears throat> you could trace, trace it in, in part to the fact that it, at least the dimension of this problem that was spurred by the overprescribing of, of drugs, um, pardon me, because when those prescriptions started drying up, and that actually started... In 2010, when OxyContin was reformulated, making it harder to, to chop up and smoke and, and, uh, or uh, inject, um, uh, doctors were um, you know, prescribing because uh, starting around the late 90s and, um, and into the 2000s, um, in part because of pretty, pretty aggressive marketing by, by uh, drug companies, but, but also there was, from, from the standpoint of uh, more of a cultural standpoint, there was, really was an undertreatment, uh, a problem of undertreatment of pain in um, the 70s, 60s and 70s. And by the 80s, patient groups were starting to mobilize to uh, get doctors to be more sensitive to chronic pain that wasn't cancer. And in even patients who had cancer in the 70s, some doctors were, were very reluctant to prescribe. It was this phenomenon called opiophobia, and it was, it was spurred by a fear of addicting patients, which when you think about it, makes almost no sense in the context of, of a terminal illness. Right. Um, and, but uh, as in so many things, the pendulum, you know, swung the other way, and doctors were being too uh, promiscuous in prescribing these medications for, uh, you know, back pain or other chronic situ- other chronic um, pain situations. So, um, so that 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 definitely, uh, you know, added had a big role in in setting off uh, the this problem. Uh, but now, of course, there's um, an unintended consequence of all the efforts to cut back on prescribing, which is that 
there is a subset of chronic pain patients who have excruciating and intractable kinds of neurologic, inflammatory um, uh, kinds of uh, medical conditions, and they actually do well on high-dose opioids. They have been doing well for many years. Uh, this makes the difference between, at the very least, getting out of bed and feeding yourself. And at most, some people go to work. They have very productive lives. But doctors now are succumbing to this climate of, of paranoia that surrounds prescribing. And so uh, chronic pain patients now, there's, uh, you know, quite I'm glad now there's finally quite a bit of attention being paid to these people who are using their medications responsibly, but they're, they've, they've been swept up in this net to curtail prescribing, which I have to say does, does make sense as well because doctors did prescribe too much, and as I said, a lot of that got diverted, but we have to be able to make distinctions. And there are people who have been given this for chronic pain. It's possible that when they first developed these conditions, they might have been treated somewhat differently with other kinds of, of interventions. But the point is that they weren't, and the, they did well with the medications. They're now on what's considered high dose, but as I say, they use it responsibly. They don't sell it. They, they're not addicted. Um, they may be dependent, which is to say, if you stop the medication abruptly, they would go have withdrawal symptoms. That's right. a completely normal physiological response. But these are, folks are now. There's a panic among this population, and and a whole new term called pain refugees. Uh, that's to say, people whose doctors. Uh, stopped treating them, lowered their doses to the point where they can't function, and they are looking desperately for other physicians who will take care of them. Right. It's really a very sad state. Dr. Satel, I think you mentioned it a little bit. Uh, I was wondering what the, if you could elaborate a little on the distinction, because you used the term addicted versus dependent, and I think that's so crucial to understanding what's what's going on and, and some of the trouble that people with chronic pain are running into when you know they're, they're taking opioids. Sure. No, that is a very big issue, and I, I, I hesitate to tell you this, but I think some doctors sometimes don't quite appreciate that distinction. <laughs> um, so dependence is physiological adaptation, and you take an opioid uh, drug, the same with, frankly, a class of medication called benzodiazepines, even alcohol. Um, you take a, a habit-forming drug for a sustained period of time, and if it is abruptly removed, you will go through withdrawal symptoms. That's to say you'll have um, uh, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, achiness, and it can be very intense. Now, how long a person has to be on these medications to experience it is highly variable. Uh, actually, after um, even a week, some people might have minor symptoms if they're very sensitive. Uh, others, frankly, don't develop it for, for months. Um, so, uh, but the point is that that is, that is a normal physiological response. It would happen to, an, frankly, an animal in a, in a laboratory situation. So doctors, uh, and the only solution to that, which is quite easy, is to slowly taper the medication. And uh, doctors should be aware of that. I know patients have sometimes, uh, uh, you know, weathered the white knuckled it themselves because the doctor either wasn't as aware as he should have been or just didn't communicate that to the person. So that's very important. But that's not the same thing as addiction. Now, to be sure, most people who are addicted 
will experience withdrawal if their medications they don't have access to the their drugs but uh, but addiction is a much more complicated behavioral state and it's one of craving the drug wanting the drug very badly to the point where often uh, responsibilities are are ignored or people make other kinds of compromises that hurt themselves their health their other their loved ones um, and in my experience as, as a psychiatrist, it is almost always in the pursuit of some sort of mental relief. Uh, I've never met a contented, happy person who developed an addiction. I, I've certainly known contented, happy people who experiment with drugs, but that's a right. whole different issue. And and when you think about it, there has to be some reason why people would 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 make these sacrifices as ambivalent as they are to make them and as much pain as it causes them. They know they're disappointing people, ruining relationships, but but the relief is just so paramount that for a while in their life that takes precedence. Uh, 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 so you said you're worried that many doctors don't know this distinction. What like how do we address that? Well, I think I, I, I'm maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I do think that this problem of overprescribing um, and doctors often being played by patients, I hate to say it, sometimes for prescriptions, um, which a lot of times patients sell part of. I mean, it's really quite, if you've read Dreamland, it's really, which is by Sam Quinone, it's, a, like, it's the biography of the uh, opioid epidemic. Uh, there's a lot of a, a abuse, as you can imagine. But I, there's been such a, uh, now an awakening in the medical profession to being much more cautious about using these drugs, understanding, you know, their side effects, what can develop, how they have to monitor patients more carefully, that uh, I'm optimistic that the message is getting uh, through, that they have to understand the phenomenon much better. I know they're giving all kinds of there's lectures every week in medical centers, you know, about about the issue. So, I, I and it also in training in medical school because you can imagine so much of this is traced to what people learn during their training. I mean, when you finish when you finish your residency, most people go out into the you know practice in the community. Um, there's only a minority of doctors who stay in a medical center where the learning is, you know, much more active. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, so if you don't learn something in residency, chances are you might not be as aware of it as you should when you're out there practicing. Right. But training is really being improved as well. Dr. Sally Sattel is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and uh, we are talking to her about her piece in America Magazine, Today's Opioid Crisis. Uh, I'm Father Matt Malone. I'm joined by Father Eric Sundrup and uh, um, Robert David Sullivan. Yes, and um, you're, you're talking about being optimistic about uh, knowledge in the medical community, but uh, the opioid crisis is now really a political, even a criminal justice issue, and I, I, I've been reading about states trying to regulate prescriptions, and we have these chains, drugstore chains like uh, mm -hmm. CVS, saying they won't even refill or um, fill prescriptions past a certain date. Uh, do you, past a few days, do you worry about people outside the medical profession kind of intervening and not doing what's best for the patients here? I, I, yes. I mean, <clears throat> this is, relates to what we were talking about before about people who do need these medications 
not having access to them. Um, you have to separate, I think, acute pain from chronic pain. And, um, and in the acute situation, it is true, some states, I think over half of states now have a law that an, an initial prescription for, an acute, for acute pain cannot exceed anywhere, depending upon the state, from three days to, to, to 10 days. I think three days is absurd. I know there was federal legislation proposing three days, and to me that is just an unconscionable intrusion into you know, clinician discretion. I don't even particularly care for it at the state level. I think it's something medical societies should do. Um, but but the, the sort of the good news is when it comes to acute prescribing, you know, seven to 10 days is probably all someone needs. And, and most of these, uh, I, I have to admit, I haven't seen a, uh, a policy where a doctor can, cannot renew a prescription, uh, but it should be made as easy for the doctor as possible. Uh, for example, the patient himself shouldn't have to show up to get that prescription if he's in misery. You should be able to send a family member, right. um, you know, that, that sort of thing. So uh, because, again, acute pain typically resolves uh, in, a, in a pretty short period of time or um, people don't necessarily need opioids for it, that kind of restriction, although as I, I agree with you that uh, I think it's, it's quite an intrusion into uh, care from, from, from other institutions, will probably not do much patient harm. It's the chronic pain uh, patients who are really suffering the most. Right. Now, uh, Doctor, what do you think we need to do at the level of public policy to address this crisis? Well, there are so many uh, angles, but I, I have to, can I just thank you for not saying, A, who's to blame, right. and B, <laughs> what's the answer? Right. <laughs> because <laughs> clearly you know this is so such a mosaic of forces sure. uh, that have both created it and that it will resolve it. Um, and it'll never, it'll never stop it because um, I'm, I'm Jewish, but at the risk of, of, can I say, you know, the poor you'll always have with you? I hope not, but <laughs> yeah. the addiction you'll always have with you. Sure. And why not? Because it's a response to pain, uh, right. and I mean psychic pain. But certainly we can do a lot better. And um, so there, if you think about it, in two categories, you know, supply reduction versus demand reduction. Supply reduction is very difficult. Um, the supply, the aspect of supply that has to do with physicians, that we can deal with. And we are. We're making significant progress. You can look at a graph, and, and since 2011, pres prescriptions have really started dropped off in an impressive way. I mean, they're at least 25% less than they were um, in 2011. Uh, they still probably have further to go. But in any case, that's we, we can handle that part. I see that as fairly doable. Uh, but the illicit supply of fentanyl is going to be a huge challenge because it comes over the dark web. It comes, um, you know, through the postal service, the packages, you know, because fentanyl is so concentrated, you can just send a small package and that will have a lot of deadly drug in it that then dealers will mix into fentanyl, uh, excuse me, the heroin supply. And um, it's very hard to find. And, and I know that the, um, Postal Service and, and Congress are. This is a big issue, but the other um, the other problem with fentanyl, which is called, uh, well, actually people call them now fentanyl analogs, because it, you just change a few molecules and you get a related but even more intense drug. And now we have something called carfentanyl, C A R. 
F-E-N-T-A-N-I-L, it is a thousand to five thousand times more potent than heroin if you can foul them, and oh, that's uh, is not as prevalent as fentanyl, but that has there have been um, outbreaks of that in some in some places. Fent- uh, carfentanyl, I should say, fentanyl is a fine medication. If you, if you're post surgical, they're going to probably give it to you in a pump. You use it; it's it's good, but it's given in micro doses. Right. And uh, carfentanyl has no known use in humans, but it is an accepted veterinary drug uh, used for big game, wow. uh, you know, when wardens have to tag tag them or transport big animals and veterinarians and, and in uh, zoos. But in any case, um, so uh, there are very creative chemists out there, and you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to have a Nobel Prize in chemistry to manipulate the molecules. So there will be newer and newer versions of this, and that's that's really pretty, pretty scary. Um, but, uh, and then, of course, there's just basic interdiction from, from Mexico, and that's pretty hard, too. But, um, but in any case, that's basically the supply reduction part of the picture. And then the demand reduction is largely treatment. You know, in the very acute setting, there's nalox, uh, naloxone, Narcan, which is the antidote, the very fast-acting antidote to an overdose of opioids, which not only do police and EMTs have, but now you can go to the drugstore in, I think, most states and just buy it over the counter. Um, and a lot of people who live in certain neighborhoods where they, I, I'm serious, they've, you know, McDonald's bathrooms have now become shooting galleries. Yeah. Uh, so McDonald's managers have it, librarians uh, carry it. Anywhere there's a closed bathroom um, in a neighborhood where this is... Um, you know, rampant is right. a common place. So anyway, so that's the that's the immediate. You know, that just keeps people alive. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But that's not enough. Right. And right. There's treatment. <laughs> Obviously, there's a, our treatment infrastructure is very poor. Um, I know Congress. I know everyone's really trying to work on this. I, I wouldn't. I, 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 there's so much work going on on the ground. Basically, it's local response, but they need the money from you know from the feds, and. I'll just say one more thing, because you can imagine could talk about this forever, um, <laughs> is that the criminal just, you know, we've certainly softened as a culture our approach to this problem compared to, let's say, the crack epidemic. Um, it's much more, it's it's seen much more as a public health issue as opposed to a criminal justice one. Um, but there is a role for the criminal justice system and a very important one because, you know, when people commit crimes, and I'm not talking about murder, but, you know, shoplifting the kinds of crimes that are associated with supporting a drug habit. Um, you know, people still have to be accountable, but their life doesn't have to be ruined because of it. Right. So when when you hear this was now a well-meaning, but to me sort of an annoying mantra, which is we can't arrest our way out of it. I'd much rather people say we can't arrest our way out of it. Excuse right. me, we can't, we can't incarcerate our way out of it. Um, because... By, by arresting people and having good diversion programs, which sends them to treatment, these now who's the leverage now of the judge who's making sure they're going, and the promise of their charges being dropped when they complete it, which I think is essential to this working. Um, you know, you can take folks who, you know, or drop in and out of treatment or never even want to go to a treatment program, but now they're in it. and. Right. Well, some people might say you can't force it, but coerced treatment actually 
tends to work pretty well um, because people tend to internalize the values of the of the program and, right. the, and they see the virtue of recovery over time. Not always, but but often. Dr. Sally uh, Sattel is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. We've been talking about uh, the opioid crisis in the United States here in America this week. And uh, doctor, you have about 30 seconds. If somebody is listening and is experiencing a problem with this or loves somebody who is, uh, where can they turn? Uh, they can, uh, you know, usually the Department of, of Health in their, um, you know, where they live has lists of, of treatment programs. The Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A, has lists of uh, treatment uh, uh, centers. Uh, don't be afraid of taking, if, you, if your opioids are your problem, don't be afraid of taking the medications they might suggest, like methadone or buprenorphine, you don't have to be on them forever, but they really cut the craving, and you won't have any withdrawal symptoms if you go on that. Don't be fearful. All right. Dr. Sally Sattel, thank you so much for being with us, and thanks for your piece in America Magazine. Oh, thank you so much. Of course, you can find that piece, uh, which uh, the, the headline of which is Prescriptions Are Not to Blame for Today's Opioid Crisis. Currently, <laughs> today's <laughs> today's opioid crisis, Not which you yesterday. can find at uh, americamagazine.org forward slash serious, and you can actually find all of the content that we were talking about today. Pretty varied. <laughs> yes, yes. we we covered a lot. Right from uh, the the uh, political assassinations in the Philippines to polarization at Georgetown University to Star Wars to the opioid crisis. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's indicative of the diversity of stuff that we're always talking about in America. It seems so. standard to me, working in America. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's no shortage of things to talk about. That's what I always say, right? Um, so, as I said, to find all of these articles, you can go to americamagazine.org forward slash series. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter and on... Are we on Instagram? Uh, yes, yeah, we are. Yeah. yeah, and Instagram and probably something I haven't ever heard of. But my nieces and nephews would know about it. (laughs) Right. And uh, to subscribe to America, you can call 1-800-627-9533. That's 1-800-627-9533 for a smart Catholic take on faith and culture. I would say that it is akin to getting a world-class Jesuit education for less than a dollar a week. That's that's a really good marketing ploy. We might yeah, be using is. that. I know. We might need to use that. <laughs> for Father Eric Sundrup and Robert David Sullivan, I'm Father Matt Malone. Thanks for joining us. Good day. Thank you for listening to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM. And tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.